0: it's show 150 of the rim pro report the end of summer show with a special extended replay of one of the best shows we've ever had on the old rim pro report this show is sponsored by our good friends at o'neill software so now that the summer is complete and september is about to hit us that can only mean one thing the o'neill partner conference is just about here it's more than 80 percent sold out i noticed on the website this morning so you still Still, have a chance to make it to Huntington Beach, California for the event from the 18th to 20th of September, along with training in the infamous Record Center fundraising challenge. Or, rumor has it, there's going to be some kind of big announcement. If you want to learn more, hop on over to O'Neillsoft.com to do so. For the record, I see it fit to inform you that this 150th show of the Rim Pro Report is going to be really, really, really ridiculously good. And because of that, I think it's best we just get going. Welcome to the RIM Pro Report. The one and only weekly broadcast for the RIM support services industry. Bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to this, our 150th show. I'm glad you're here. Who'd have ever guessed we'd have actually done 150 of these things? Kind of blows my mind most days, but we have have to say a huge thanks to you for making it all work. We're here because you're here, because you show up and listen and you let me know you're listening. And I'm so grateful for those of you who remind me on a regular basis that uh, you, you really enjoy what you hear, you enjoy the interviews, you enjoy what's going on. And uh, I love it because we get to just do really interesting stuff, talk to interesting people from the industry, and I, I, I've i grown to kind of be aware that you like the format, this extended interview format where we actually dig into people's stories, dig into what they've learned, that kind of stuff. So thank you for continuing to show up. 150 shows is a pretty cool accomplishment. Uh, I have watched for many years other people doing uh, podcasts, this kind of format, this kind of media format. And uh, in an industry of our size, I I haven't seen anyone who's pulled this kind of thing off. So I'm I'm I gotta say I'm pretty proud of what we've done here. So thank you to you, thanks to O'Neill for sponsoring the show, and uh, thanks to many of the cool guests we've had on the show who make this show all worthwhile. It's the last week of summer. Many kids are back to school. A lot more will be back next week, and so we're going to end the summer here on the Rim Pro Report with an extended replay of one of my favorite interviews in the last year. The one I did with Richard Reese now when we did the show in the spring we divided actually into two different shows but today we're actually going to play it in its entirety for you in the event that you're new to the industry and don't know who richard reese is and was richard was the ceo and chairman of the board of iron mountain for most of its life easily the most influential figure in all of room services for more than 30 years richard officially retired uh, earlier in the spring and soon after his retirement i had a chance to interview him this is a long interview if you've already heard it no need to to listen necessarily Uh, but what I know is there's so many good things in this interview that if you did listen the first time there is going to be something better the second time you listen to it because uh, Richard Reese is one of the most astute minds uh, that's ever <laughs> been around. He, he just has such a knack of seeing with clarity what was what was going on in the industry. And this interview allowed us a chance to both hear his story, sort of where he got all this, this knowledge from, where he built this wisdom. And then we spend most of the last half of the interview really talking about what that means and what the implications from his perspective mean. So if you've got senior staff, investors, partners, uh, people who have not heard this interview, you have to pass it along to them what Richard has to say in this interview is worth listening to again and again just to make sure you catch the pieces of what he had to say and because of its length and the fact that the industry related news has been quiet this week we're just going to get right into the interview so hold tight while I cue up the replay <laughs> It is my extreme honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Richard Reese to the RIM Pro Report. Richard has just officially retired from his role at Iron Mountain and has graciously joined us on the show today to share his story, the Iron Mountain story, and his perspectives on this RIM industry. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you, Tom. I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's it's a real pleasure. Well, I, I want to get right into this because there's a whole lot to talk about. Uh, so let's start with your personal story. Well, we may know you from the iron mountain context can you tell me a little bit about your life before you got to iron mountain from your early days in union south carolina through your time at harvard i know there's a lot of story in there but give me a sense of what your life was before you ever hit iron mountain
1: well sure but this it unfortunately could take a while so i'll try to just hit the high spots
0: uh, All right.
1: i was born and raised in union south carolina that's a very small town and uh, in the Piedmont area, I went to high school there and, left and went to Clemson University, uh, thought that I would be an engineer, but went in thinking I'd be an electrical engineer and got there and changed to being a ceramic engineer. I stayed around. and got a master's degree, had various summer and in intermediate kind of jobs uh, in, in textile mills and things like Oak Ridge National Laboratory working on nuclear fuel. Wow. And as, as was those era, I actually, I graduated from Clemson and got my master's in 1969. If you remember history, that was the Vietnam era. Yeah. And uh, I went to ROTC and came out of uh, Clemson and had to do my two years in the U.S. Army. And frankly, you know, uh, I'm a real believer in luck and a real believer in, in different people at different points in time kind of help change your life. And, I, and one of those changed a of going off the Army, and I had— made friends with a, a guy who had uh, gone to graduate school with me, and he had just come back out of the Army and we'd become friends, and as I left, he handed me a catalog to Harvard Business School, and he said, uh, you know, when you get out of the Army, you need to go there. Well, the truth is, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of Harvard Business School Wow. Uh, growing up in the South at that stage, but it was somebody I'd gotten to know. He's three or four years older than me, and uh, he and his wife both had become good friends, you know, somebody or learned a lot of things from, and that was sort of the beginning of somebody sort of giving me good advice that eventually I paid attention to. Yeah. But I left uh, Clemson and went off in the U.S. Army and did uh, what was supposed to be two years, but turned out to be less because Vietnam was slowing down. And I was on the way to Vietnam, and if the Army uh, has their way of doing it, they detoured me to Germany. Hmm. And once I, And they told me it would only be temporarily for a few months, but once I got there, they left me. Uh, which I didn't complain about, and had a great time, and, and that was another just great opportunity because once they've seen Paris, you can't get them back on the farm. Well, that's a little bit of my experience. Once I left South Carolina and I lived in Germany, I've traveled all over Europe for oh, a better part of a year and a half or so. Uh, there was no going back to Union, South Carolina for sure, which was a very small town with no real opportunities, but there was really just no going back at all. It was just look forward and see what else in life you could find to do with Greater Horizons. And in fact, I did apply to Harvard Business School and got accepted and went there. Again, uh, thinking I was going to come out of Harvard Business School as an engineer, but an engineering manager, I went, and when I went there, I learned the lesson of what they call other people's money, ah. uh, or the use, of, the use of leverage, and yeah. uh, the use of and opportunity, and a little bit about entrepreneurship. And so I came out of Harvard Business School not to be an engineer, but came out, went back to South Carolina, and... Uh, Went to work with a a privately-owned company in the timber and the real estate business, and perfect timing, that was 1974. And if you know business history, you know that was the height of the real estate. One of the real estate bubbles and the market significantly collapsed. But I spent about a year and a half, two years there, and realized that the next big lesson in life is if you work for a family-owned company and you're not part of the family, that's not a good idea. (laughs) And no matter what, blood is always thicker than water, and, and it should be, but... And from an opportunity perspective, I, I moved on and moved to Florida for a while and worked for a small public company that was about as poorly managed as you could ever see. And I learned a lot there in a very short period of time. And met another gentleman, worked for him for a while. He was brought in to help clean it up, and, and he he got frustrated. And I left. He left. In fact, the third gentleman that we all worked little left after a while because. When the CFO came and told me not to tell the truth to the auditors, I thought it was a good time to leave the business, so hmm. well, we did. But it was an interesting exercise because you learn a lot when things are in trouble. Yeah. You, you know, I've always said you don't learn so much when things are going well because when all boats are rising, the tide is rising, everybody does well, you think you're smart and smarter than everybody else, and uh, you don't learn a lot. But boy, when it's a mess, and this company was a mess, uh, you learn a lot real fast. I learned a lot about how to motivate a sales force, a lot about how to, you know, how to just deal with all kinds of problems in a very short period of time, and quite a little bit about how to manage from the gentleman I work with, as well as a few other people, because if, if, when you're all hunkered down, and it's always a, almost a battle, you know, everybody learns from each other, and it was right. quite an experience, but I came out of there, moved back to Boston, where my wife had grown up, and she had decided that she had had enough of living down south for a while, and so we went back and also felt like there might have been more opportunity and decided that being an entrepreneur was something I wanted to try. Uh, obviously, I didn't have any money, and I didn't really have any great experience, but I, I went about trying to structure my life to find good opportunity, and a part of that was I wound up doing some business consulting, and part of it was I wound up teaching at Harvard Business School for a while. But all of that was just to put me in a position to look for and find the right opportunity, and just through that, I met a gentleman of Ben Ryan, and today is one of the largest shareholders still. Uh, ben through through his investment company called Scudder Capital right. of Iron Mountain, and I joined Ben uh, at Iron Mountain. It was a three million dollar revenue business, I joined him in return for a small piece of the equity and and, and the opportunity to earn more. And you know, sort of that sort of the rest of the history. That was 1981. In fact, it was uh, about November December 1981. And uh, In fact, it was December, come to think of it, because my second son was born uh, about four or five days before I joined the company. Wow. So, you know, I joined it with $3 million in revenue. Uh, you know, thank goodness Ben get, he gave me an airline ticket to fly up to upstate New York where the operations were at the time, because when he told me, he, he described Iron Mountain, he described it as, as this business that stored records underground, well back in 1981 when somebody said you stored records they you know they thought about these round things that go around with a needle and right. make music. Right. And nobody really understood corporate records. I certainly didn't, you know. I'd been to Harvard Business School. I taught at Harvard Business School and hope, who whoever thought about corporate records and corporate information back then it just was not something you know, people Thought about or anything else?
0: So, what happened when you you actually arrived at at Iron Mountain the very first time after Vin Ryan had encouraged you to come and you visited was was that kind of a significant experience when you first saw the way records were kept in that? T- tell me a little bit about how that all went
1: Well, when I when I went around uh, one of the original underground sites in upstate New York, what I was able to see was you know, it's like a small city underground with all, all these buildings. And in that in those days, a lot of the companies. Uh, you know, they literally had their brands out on the outside of the buildings that have an entire building of their records. Right. And you would look around and you'd see these major corporate brands, most of which were in New York and Connecticut, storing records in it. And when you, you know, when they'd tour me through, and you look, you'd realize that. Uh, you know, I came to realize this was a serious and interesting business, and yeah. it was a business that this was a period of the mini computer revolution headed towards the PC. It was a period of high technological evolution and short. Product cycles, which we've gotten nothing but short in the technology space, and I looked at this and said, "This is pretty interesting." There are serious companies that are clearly spending uh, a lot of money to do this. I can understand why it's important to them, and I realized it was a company with a very long product cycle, which I thought was pretty exciting, since I didn't have the product innovation skills hmm. at the time that one would need to, uh, you know, to go into the technology business. So right. he added all up. I said, "This made a lot of sense."
0: So you arrive officially at Iron Mountain as as the president, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Started the top, stayed at the top. I mean, that's an awful thing to say, but that's you know really where it worked. It was a three million dollar business. At the time, was losing money a little bit, and you know, so I I came in to sort of clean it up. It had a lot of structural, legal, structural uh, tax issues that had to be dealt with, and you know, financing issues. Uh, As you, as everybody in the industry knows, this business consumes capital while, while it's in growth phase. And that's clearly if you, you follow Iron Mountain, you follow any of the companies with public uh, records out there, the business for most of the time I operated it consumed a lot of capital because mm. you have to invest the capital, continue outfitting facilities, right. and so on. But once you hit a certain point, it also gushes a lot of cash, and that's where Iron Mountain is today. Yeah, You know, it's, it's hit that inflection point, and that changes a lot of things. But back in the early years in the records business, uh, It was a business that consumed a lot of capital, one that was not well understood about capital markets, and therefore raising capital was one of the most difficult things, frankly, to make the business work.
0: So let's say you're around, whether it be six months or a year or two years, and you've done some of the the initial cleanup that you talked about. Did you start really seeing and at that point having a vision for what this could be and and where you could go with this? Tell me a little bit about your initial strategy, maybe once you got settled and the focus that you took for those initial years besides sort of cleaning up those legal and tax implications.
1: Well, I'd like to tell you that I looked in and I was a genius, and I saw this wonderful <laughs> vision of information growth in a large, multi-billion-dollar company. But I'd be lying to you. Right? Yeah, I happen to believe there are very few people that uh, I can tell you all kinds of revisionist history stories, but that's looking backwards. Look, the truth is, and I've always learned and believed this: that you have to be successful in business. As I say, you have to be in swimming in the stream, and if you're swimming in the stream and you're smart, you can spot opportunities, and you can spot near-term ones, and you can spot mid-term ones, and over time you can spot even long-term ones. But that's what experience brings. If you're on the outside looking in, it's it's awful hard to really spot things. And so part of what I had been looking for was to get into a stream, and then you can go look for opportunities. And I think I got lucky by getting into the information business and the information storage business in its very, very early years. Right which it's it's had and still has some interesting opportunities, but it had an enormous outsourcing wave that this just created tremendous opportunities. But, no, I didn't see that that far back. What I did see was a great fiduciary responsibility, that we were really trusted by these companies to store the information, and that brought a lot of obligations, and I thought that was something we could build on, and we certainly have tried and and have built on that. But no, it was very hard to see the information revolution. When I joined Durn Mountain, it was just beginning, uh, and the business that was booming at that time were computer tape storage. You know, the paper business actually had not really started to outsource hmm. at a super fast pace. That came probably in the, within about five seven years later, where you could really see the, fast, the pace of the outsourcing the paper business start up. Hmm. But yeah, I'd like to say that we had always this, this wonderful vision, but it just didn't true. You know, it. Every step along the way, we had stepped back and said, what does the next three years, what is the next five years, what does the next 10 years bring? With some blurriness the further out you go, you can get to see uh, a good sense of what it will bring, but not nearly years. It, the industries and the businesses really had not formed. The market really hadn't formed itself.
0: Right. So, looking back at the history of Iron Mountain, it seems to me that the Bell and Howell acquisition was a pretty major early milestone for you. So, how did that deal change you, Iron Mountain, and even the industry at that point?
1: Well, up until then, we believed and everybody else believed that the records business was totally local business, hmm. that there was only one market. It was only a market within about 30 to 40 miles of center city of a of a major city. Right. And the truth is, when we bought Bell & Howell, and there's lots of stories about how we were able to do it, but it was a big leverage buyout, and we used a lot of leverage. And as I mentioned earlier, when I first joined the business, one of the biggest problems of the industry is the financial community. The capital markets, be it the banks and the had no understanding of the industry and had no interest in, in providing capital to it, yet it's a highly capital intensive business, which, which is a real problem. Right. And one of the things I think that we have... We did well, and I guess I can take some credit for it, but uh, I didn't do it all by myself, just like I didn't do anything by myself, was we realized that getting the capital markets to understand the company and being able to provide sources of capital to us and the entire industry was going to be a key to making it into a real business. And Hmm. so we went about doing a lot of stuff. From almost the first day I joined the company, it seemed like I had to spend a lot of time in those kinds of issues. And the Bell Howell acquisition was no... uh, Difference. I mean, I jokingly say, but it's basically true that it was a seventy-five million dollar acquisition, and we borrowed seventy-six million dollars. <laughs> uh, and we stuck our neck out. We literally bought it, kept it separate from Iron Mountain itself in separate pockets, just in case we were wrong. We wouldn't, you know, lose one uh, for the risk we were taking on the other. We might we'd lose a lot of our own money, and money would you know, borrow and everything else, but. But then the strategy, when we bought it, it was actually sell off a lot of the smaller cities because Bell & Howell had been on, on a care to go out and buy companies a little bit and try to build a national footprint. Oh, okay. But as I said, we believed that being national had no real advantage and the customers didn't care. And therefore, we bought it for its mainly its California presence, which was where it was making all its money, and it was losing money everywhere else. But when we got inside, we found two phenomena. One is, is the, the smaller... Non-California cities were growing really fast, and they were going to break even very quickly, and we could see ways to get them to break even very quickly, push them a little bit. And second was that, you know, our customers started saying, oh, if you can service us in this city and that city, we're interested. And suddenly we could see the reason there had not been a national market that there had not been a national opportunity. There was no alternative. The customers couldn't think in that way. Hmm. And so Bill and Howell allowed us to do, and and within about 18 months, we got it all put together and we combined the two companies. We refinanced it. Uh, We did a lot of things very quickly because we had to change our strategy. Part of the strategy, I said, was to go in and sell down assets and pay off some of that high debt real fast. Right. But as soon as we got in, we realized that, no, it was probably smarter to go raise more capital in a different way and put it all together and take advantage of that national trend. And that was... Again, good serendipity. I think good execution. We didn't see it from the outside. It's only after you get in there that we we really came to that conclusion.
0: But it sounds to me like what you just said is that there were some panicky moments during that whole process.
1: Oh, have always been a few higher wire acts, you know. Yeah, you don't get anywhere without taking risks. There's no such thing as you know doing really well in life if you're not willing to take some risk. And we had taken a few from here, from different points in time. You just have to calibrate them and try to manage them carefully.
0: Right. So 1996 then, from the time that Bell & Howell acquisition and what you just talked about really stabilizing that acquisition, there was some in the interim there. But it seems that in 96, uh, February of 96, uh, you go public, giving you really that massive influx of capital, you needed to go into a pretty aggressive acquisition and expansion focus. What was the opportunity you now saw in the market and industry and what really was the strategy you were engaging at that point? What were you thinking uh, based on getting uh, going public, and then wh- where were you going after that? What was the big dream and vision at that point?
1: Well, from November of 88, when we closed Bell and Howell off, to about February of ninety six, in fact to, to really about early ninety five, which was when we started thinking back going public. Yeah. We focused the whole business on, you know, cleaning up Bell and Howell, integrating all of it, turning into a national business, you know, one set of technology and growing internally. we grew the business internally over the time period, I think about twelve percent of the revenue and cash flow about fifteen percent. Tuning margin and just running the business better. Right. And when we got through we had a pretty much a national footprint. And there was really no real contender to that, except that uh, at that time, Pierce Leahy, during the interim there, uh, Pierce Business Archives and Leahy Business Archives came together and went about trying to do the same thing. And then you had, uh, uh, it was not branded early on Recall, it was branded Bramble's, I believe, Bramble's Information Management, and they rebranded Recalls. But Bramble's came up from Australia, a big public company with well-heeled, lots of capital. Yeah. And really took a pretty aggressive approach towards the market to try to consolidate the, the U.S. market, and their timing was pretty good. If you study markets, you realize that they usually get started in a very fragmented way, as the records business has, and then they will consolidate for efficiency. and There's a lot of reasons why that happens. It happens almost in every market, and so it's a question of whether you are going to, if you're going to sell into that trend, or if you're going to buy in that trend, in which you're going to try to be a leading consolidator. Are you going to try to go ahead and liquidate into that consolidation wave? Because during the consolidation wave is when the value of your businesses will grow the fastest and be the highest. Right. And Brambles really got started, and frankly, they didn't execute it particularly well. But they got the industry going. They got a lot of first-generation entrepreneurs in the business to look around and say, for the first time in their careers, they had good liquidation opportunities. They could capitalize on. 20 years worth of work in their career and turn it to cash and, and look to uh, doing something else or looking on to another to retirement or whatever they want to do. And up until then that opportunity really hadn't existed because nobody was out buying records businesses or putting capital in the industry right. And when Bramble started that, as like I said, he got people doing and you need somebody to light the fuse and they let the fuse. so they bought a few. and it was real clear that there were others who would be interested in the right transaction, the right valuation. And so Iron Mountain was still privately owned at the time, and frankly it was three of us that owned it, our CFO at the time, myself and Spinner Capital and Ben. And we spent quite a bit of time, we talked to various capital sources and looked at our alternatives and went through our models and our forecasts and, and went through the the logic of, do we want to be a seller? You know, we've got a good-sized business now in the market. We're out there, and you've got a major player coming in wanting to put capital in, of the alternatives you could sell to them. And do you want to be a seller or do you want to raise capital and see if you can't build the leading consolidator? And We spent enough time and said, no, let's, let's, uh, let's see if we can raise the capital in the public markets because if you're going to be a consolidator, you're going to need ready access to capital. You're going to need access to lots of capital right. in this business, and that means you're going to need a public currency. So we made that decision, we actually went up and lined up two or three acquisitions because... At that time in 1996, the public equity markets were enamored with throw-ups. That was the uh, product at that moment uh, that the market was hot on and everything else. And so we went out and talked to various bankers and found one that was smart enough to understand this one-off business. And the difficult thing about going public is it goes back to the same thing. Capital markets never heard of records. A one-off business, if you look at the equity markets, they, they like to compare one company to others. Right from a valuation perspective. And so people would look at it and say, it looks like an interesting business, but I don't know how to value it. And of course it was always didn't paper already go away? Isn't it going away? You know, the question I've been dealing with forever. Right. But we got it, we got it out. Uh, we didn't raise a lot of money on hindsight. I think we raised thirty eight million dollars, something like that. And I'll never forget on the road shows the all the potential investors kept asking me, You sure you can you know you can buy companies, you sure you can spend thirty eight million dollars? Sounds like a lot of money. Compared to what we'd ever spent in the last five, seven years. And, uh, wow. I said, sure, I think so, but we'll find out, won't we? And of course, the rest is history. We spent three, four billion dollars, and it's been an interesting run. But that was uh, another one of those things that was a bit of a high wire. In those days, and it still is, the public markets open and close. But, in this case, EBITDA was the metric we were using. There were almost no public companies at that stage talking about or dealing with EBITDA really no, nope. and that was that has a lot to do with counting changes that occurred since then. Now it's pretty standard. you yeah. hear everybody talking about earnings and EBITDA and everything else. But we were one of the first EBITDA stores. in fact, the only other industry out there was cable business cable t v it was selling, and, and again, they had four or five comps, and people were comfortable with it. Right. People were very nervous about an EBITDA story, a one-off, never heard of it story. And, you know, to raise $38 million, I bet we didn't have commitments for any more than about $40 billion. And typically, you'd want four to five to one commitments to what you actually raise. So right. We barely got it
0: out. Oh, my goodness. But then you used that, you said you had two or three, and it seemed like from 96 into 2000, you, you did a fair amount of acquisition then, but then 2000, the Pierce Leahy deal happens, really brought the two largest industry players together at the time, maybe barring Brambles. And I suspect this topic might be an entire show to itself, but that deal changed the company and, to me, the record storage industry in a significant way. Can you tell me, in retrospect, the significance of that acquisition and the impact it then had on the rim industry and Iron Mountain as a whole?
1: Well, sure, because what what was happening, remember I said Brambles came in was, was acquiring, and then we really sta- started acquiring. And then Pierce Leahy uh, first raised some public debt, and then they eventually went public for public equity, but they raised public debt originally just to, to start the race. And as I like to describe it, and, and, I've, and I've described it for years when we were in the middle of it, we're in, a, we're in a sprint, we're in a race. And, you know, you can see the finish line, which is leadership, and leadership is very valuable uh, in every industry being number one, and mm-hmm. we ran hard for it. And, you know, you make mistakes and everything else, but if you slow down and you temper yourself, you won't make it to the end. Marathons, you have to temper yourself, and you got to pace yourself and everything else. But if you're going to run a sprint, you look at the goal line and you run and you fall over. You know, you just run hard, and that's basically what we did. We bought a company on average every three weeks, eventually expanding that activity to five continents for 12 years straight. Wow. That's that's a lot of acquisition work, and we wow. built a really good acquisition machine. And Pierce Lay was doing similar, and they they were buying, and we were buying, and for a while, the industry was enjoying uh, the fact that you had two very big competitors acquiring and everything else, and they were sometimes enjoying the battle of one facing the other, and so forth. But Pierce he got to a point where there's. A lot of complexity in using in your capital structure in a high-capital business like this, but it really comes down to managing leverage in an appropriate way. And they got their leverage too high. That means they, they, they got their debt too high. And the rate at which you can buy companies has a lot to do with how much equity you got under your leverage and seeing it coming and understanding it. And they got in a position where they had to announce that the public markets so they were going to slow down and buying companies and digest what they had bought because their debt had gotten too high. Hmm. That caused the stock to come down substantially, and that caused a lot of pressure, since it was family-owned, a lot of pressure on people to make a change and created an opportunity for us to consider merging the businesses together, which we did. And as you know, that took number one and number two yeah. and put them together. It, it solidified our market leadership position, I, I would say, forever. Yeah. and. Basically, North America and both them, and we had already started expanding in Europe and Latin America, so it gave us good head starts in those markets. And at that time, Hayes was the biggest player in Europe uh, out of the UK, right? right. Uh, and then both Pierce Leahy and Aaron Mountain had been had made footholds over there, so you know. And as you know, we went forward later and eventually bought Hayes over there, which solidified our leadership in all of Europe as well as we'd already solidified North America,
0: yeah the growth of you know really the outcome of that solid leadership position really then forced you I think in in some way to be kind of always on the cutting edge of what was going on and almost a continual evolution not just from the acquisitions but the expansion into data protection and the work you did there all the expansions into digital how really did Iron Mountain's Activity reflect the evolution of the marketplace issues, trends, and demands that were happening because of that global leadership position?
1: Well, one, one of our key strategies as we speak internally to ourselves is I like to voice it is go where our customers need us. And that, that had a lot to do with the geographic expansion and still does, by the way. We're still, you know, Iron Mountain bought 17 companies last year. Right. People think we're not buying as much. And we, and there was a period, as you know, as I, I tried to retire about five, Right. years ago, something like that. And then I came back out of semi-retirement two years ago. But there was a period which we did slow down. In fact, basically didn't buy anybody in North America. But we're buying everywhere, and the company's buying everywhere now, But there's a lot of reasons we can talk about later why. But part of that strategy is to go where our customers need us, and in this case, uh, we're buying internationally a lot also. Right Now that we saw a national market created because of the opportunity, we're starting to see a global market being created because we're creating that opportunity for customers to think about it in that way. And we extend that not just to geography, the concept to be where customers need us, but the concept is to what services do they want us to provide to them. Right. That's one of the reasons we went to shredding and obviously the backup tape business, the data protection business. But it also, you know, we took a a detour for a while and put put money in the online storage, which... uh, that was during the internet bubble and uh, we, we built up, uh, actually we were one of the largest B2B, outside of Salesforce.com, B2B service providers. We had about a quarter billion dollar business in services in, in the digital space. That we, when I came back two years ago, we spun off, we sold it to Autonomy. Right. But, and yeah, you know, we learned a lot in doing that. First is, we learned we could sell it. We learned it was a big capital game, but we also learned that developing software technology itself is a different, a very different skill set and cultural skill set than running a good service business, and that you really struggle to amortize the R&D development of software across a service platform where it's annuity-based. Right. And to be successful, you have to be able to sell it as a license, and the difference being when you sell it as a license, you effectively, you know, the customer effectively pays for all the capital costs the, the hardware and the setup, and they pay you up front for the intellectual property piece that you developed, and then you get a maintenance fee off from them. If you sell it as a service, you have to put all that capital cost out hmm. and rent it to them on a monthly basis, and you that doesn't generate enough return to pay for the reinvestment in the technology. So we did all that. We actually turned it to profitable and free cash flow positive then the recession of 2007-8 came, and that business actually, particularly on the license side, got hit harder than our sports, than our physical business. Right. And once you get that trend coming, you know, you're having trouble in one business and the other. We had some activist shareholders who weren't unhappy, and one thing led to the other. We stepped back and did a strategic review and said, look, uh, this digital business is good for our customers, but we're going to have to go at it a different way, and we saw, again, we went out in that market and said, should we buy our way into it? And what we saw were craziness going on, people paying five, six times revenue for companies that had no profits. And frankly, they're trying to value software service companies where they do have to put their capital in the same way that they value pure licensed software companies, which makes no sense. So what we had was a very frothy market, and we decided if you're going to be in a frothy market, you, you better not be a big buyer because you're just going to destroy 10 or 15 years worth of shareholder value with one or two transactions. Right. So we decided uh, if we're in a faulty market, we ought to be a seller. Yeah. So we sold the business, and, and the rest is history there. We, you know, and when I announced to sell, and it's still true, we actually do still do online services. Uh, we still run backup <laughs> for people. We still yep. sell backup. Or uh, Mountain still does. I shouldn't say we. I don't work there anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, and and actually, we have not have some other things in the hopper that are kind of interesting uh, uh, in in that space in the future. And along the way, we built up a document management solutions business, scanning and other related BPO businesses. Which in North America, you know, we we built a, a decent business here. We're still working on getting the margins where they need to be, but I think we're on a path to do that. But we actually do better in that space, and particularly emerging markets around the world, Latin America, India russia you know ukraine a lot of the places in eastern europe and stuff where we do we do some phenomenal things for customers that you know we don't do in in north america yeah and one of the things one of the opportunities to see if we either could do them here or maybe in the market doesn't exist here that's something we figured out Hmm. so we you know we have spent a lot of time looking with customers and talking to customers and trying to find find problems that are big enough that they want to pay us to solve and then that Goes into our filter and our screening. We try to figure out if it makes sense or not.
0: Yeah. Well, let let's maybe move a little bit into the role you've played as a, a leader in the industry, and and I would say sort of your, you know, I've heard you speak at conferences, and you always have generously provided sort of that macro view of what's going on. So I want to ask you some questions related to that. You talk about the stream and the importance of being in that. How has this industry, the RIM industry, been in the right stream, and is, is it still the right stream to be looking in going forward from here?
1: Well, yes, well, it was the right stream, and it still is, but the stream is different going forward, and I'll talk about that in a second. But look, um, you have to be in the right stream, and in this case, it's it's a just a big trend of information becoming more valuable, and we all know why. So I won't go through all of that that spill, but information is becoming more valuable and will continue to become more valuable. Therefore, we're in the right the right stream, mm-hmm. and so forth. And you know, I've always taken, and I've, I I think I went to my first Prism meeting. It was called ACRC at the time. It was in Atlanta. I remember it. In fact, ACRC was founded in Iron Mountain's offices with four or five independent vendors, and one of my predecessors got together and said, "We need an industry association." and and I think I went to probably the second real conference they ever had. I believe it was the second, second or wow. third, something like that. And we've done all but one since then. And I've always been a big believer in, in the association because it's a great place for people who compete. Most of the people in the industry don't compete with each other because they're in different cities.
2: So right.
1: it's a great place for them to exchange information. But even for us, they compete with a lot of them. It's still a good place to meet your competitors you love to hear all the stories of how bad it tells you how good you're doing and how bad you're doing. But, you know, you judge, and we have our data. We know what we're doing. Yeah. But it's still worth that. For us, for us, it was a great place to make contacts for people who might want to eventually sell. So it had a lot of positive advantages to us. But in the final analysis, my view has always been that we wanted to make the industry healthy because if the industry was healthy and did a good job, That's a better opportunity for all of us. Right. The more people who are out there being professional, the more customers who will outsource their records. Right. It's just that simple. We couldn't – we, Iron Mountain, could not have picked up, sold, picked up, delivered, whatever, and assembled that many records in that time period by ourselves. We tried. Many, many entrepreneurs did a great job of building groups of records, local businesses, all assembled customers. And for, for various reasons, decided they wanted to sell them, and that's the, the fabric of, of probably half of our growth, and mm-hmm. that's been important to us. But it's also important to have the, keep the stream, as I say, you know, very, very healthy, and you do that through good industry trade associations. And so we've always been active. I served as the president for once. We've always had Iron Mountaineers who have been willing to serve, and we tend to. We'll fund projects, and we'll share things. And yeah. we, we've just taken that attitude because we think a healthy trade association and a healthy industry is good for everybody. And so it's, we've always tried to take on things that, with the belief that if it's good for us, it's good for the industry and vice versa. So I think the industry is going to struggle uh, a little bit going forward because uh, I think you'll, fi- uh, you'll find fewer new entrants partly because the capital are required and partly because as we all know the growth rate of outsourcing has, has come down. And I still believe that some of the growth rate declines, and we saw, our mountain saw substantial decreases in what we call internal growth in 2008 and 9. And as you all know, the uh, storage growth rate declined, lagged the economy decline approximately by 15 months, whereas we saw service activity decline almost lockstep with GDP decline. I believe some of that growth will come back if we and when we get back in a much healthier, broader economy. But I also believe a lot of things have changed. Our largest customer segment of financial services is under great pressure and great change, so they're not going to be uh, as booming or in as good a shape as they were in the past. Healthcare, another major customer base, as you know, have spent more like 60 to $80 billion will be spent on, on healthcare records. That is increasing storage but decreasing activity lightning fast, Right, and you, you will expect that to continue to paper records and the healthcare business will basically be dead, they'll be true archival. Data protection in general because of, uh, of the various online redundant system solutions, the, the, the tapes are becoming much less active uh, at a very past pace, the tapes are still growing, but, and I think they'll keep growing because Customer after customer, including some of the largest online providers in the world, are our are data protection customers, and they're they're growing tapes at a very fast pace. And they've had outages, regardless of the fact that they have totally redundant and sometimes triple redundant systems. They still got to go back to tapes, tapes yeah. because they get viruses. They, yeah. you know, we know all the reasons. Yeah. And nobody has invented nor is on the horizon technology that'll do a better job that way. So I, I don't. See that business going away. I, I think all of it will do better with a better economy, but I don't see us going back to the good old days of six, eight, nine, ten percent internal growth ever. I think the developed markets, which we classify as pretty much as the English speaking world—U.S., right. Canada, U.K., Australia—and some of Western Europe, but pretty much the English speaking world are the most highly developed and most outsourced markets. You got two or three trends going on. You got finally the evolution of technologies making the creation of paper. You've also got the fact that about half or more of the market has made an outsourced decision, and by far the very large customers have. Right. So what it means is more money, more time, more energy selling smaller customers. But there's still people to be outsourced, and there will be. And Iron Mountain will get some, and so are all the people out there that listen. There's still business there. But it matters less. It's at a slower pace. But that doesn't mean it's not there, and it doesn't mean it didn't grow we believe that makes you a, a very low single-digit growing business.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, as long as the economy is growing in that range, that's fine. The economy grows. There was a time in which we grew internally at twice GDP very easily. And we're still growing at you know, one times GDP or so. But if GDP were to be higher, I'd love to see one times GDP. If you give me a 4% GDP, I'd love to see us grow at 4%. Right. That would be a good number. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So I see, uh, I think there will be some of that, but I also think a lot of it will never come back. And I think, uh, you know, people have to think harder about their portfolio of their real estate. They have to think harder about how they manage their assets. And they have to think a little harder about, you know, if they hit the top of the business. And the answer is we have. The businesses are mature. That doesn't mean they're going to go away. It just means you're going have to do some different things in the future.
2: Yeah.
0: So in the last two to three years, there's been another what I would consider a substantial round of acquisitions from players like Access, Retrievex, which are now Consolidated, Cornerstone, and you even talked about the continued acquisition uh, that Iron Mountain does. There are larger regional types also acquiring. Is there really much left to buy and roll up? How far can this really go given the fact? What you just said—less and less people are coming in because of of more mature markets and tougher tougher competition. Can this acquisition go on for very long? What's your crystal ball on all that?
1: Oh yeah, look, because no, not everybody wants to sell all at the same time, and so I said it's it's hard to make somebody sell their business unless they're ready and they want to. I mean, you can offer them just you know, egregious amounts of money versus what it's worth, but you can't do that long because you'll go broke, right? And so, yeah, I think it will take a while. And there are quite a few players. We continue to be surprised about people we find out there who are bigger than you might think and Mm -hmm. who are doing well. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are not members of those trade associations, which is too bad. I think we need to, together, all of us do a better job of getting all the local providers into the association because it's just good for the industry, as I said, and supports the association. And as we do, as the association, as more and more companies are acquired, the association will struggle a bit. You know, having the financial wherewithal, and we'll have to continue, or you guys will have to continue to manage that well to make sure you keep it healthy. Right. But yeah, I think there's still quite a bit out there, quite frankly, and and you know, you do have your, you've got your consolidators. You know, you've got you, you mentioned Access and Access Bulk Retrievex, and then you got another one, Cornerstone, Cornerstone. Yeah. And then there, as I said, you've got regional players and some people locally consolidating, but that's all part of the dynamic of a market like this. And all it tells you is what I said in the beginning, that markets that are fragmented consolidate. And in the very long time, I don't know how far that out, none of these businesses need any more than three or four valid competitors. Okay. And, you know, go to Canada and look at their banking system. And look at the U.S. banking system. And look how much it's consolidated, but look how much further it's got to go. But guess what? It's continuing, and it will continue. It'll go through speed-ups and slow-downs. But you have to drive efficiency uh, particularly at this stage of the market, while we were all just moving boxes in and growing as fast as we could handle it, efficiency was not the problem. But today, if the growth rates their customers are presenting to you, you've got to drive efficiencies. And you can look at alternative products and adjacent services, but as many people know, there's nothing better than the box business. And so everything you compare to it is an an adjacency, you go, nah, that's nice, but it's not that nice. Hmm. And there's a lot to be done to make these better businesses. There's a lot you can do in services, a lot, but it's all about driving efficiency. And that means it will consolidate more. It doesn't matter how fast it will happen, not if it will happen.
0: So, that I think, though, also leads to what many consider a highly commoditized marketplace. But for the small to mid-sized independent rim operator, let's call them, how do they make it and succeed in this highly commodity-driven large player dominated by the Iron Mountains and some of these other consolidators? How does the small to mid-sized person that eventually will be purchased really compete in that marketplace?
1: Well, look, they, I think, do a very good job. Uh, There's many of them out there do a, a superb job. And if you talk to them, they have different strategies. Most of the smart ones, frankly, stay stay below our radar, mm-hmm. and and they go for smaller customers that are frankly easier to service and that are higher margin, and they make good money. Yeah, that doesn't mean we'll leave them alone forever, uh, or I'm not leave them alone forever because I'm sure they will. But it still leaves a lot of room. They want to go for the larger customers, as you probably all know. The pricing in the large customer segment is you know is down in the tank. And it's you have to be extremely efficient to make money at the price levels that are out there. So it goes back to you're gonna to have to be more efficient and you're gonna to have to look for efficiency in your own business and you or you'll wind up consolidating and taking your gains in order not to compete but to you know be able to do well. And and there are people who are doing unique plays on the service and so forth. Those are interesting sometimes but that works pretty well for a local entrepreneur on a local basis for a while, but most of what you see is not scalable. Oh, okay. Meaning it's very hard to operate in 50 places and 50 locations. So, as an entrepreneur, it's a good way to generate cash and everything else, but it doesn't actually build the value of the business that much because if it's not scalable, the consolidators are not likely to pay you a lot for that part. Hmm. So, you have to. You have to be intelligent about, you know, it's not that I wouldn't tell people not to do services like that. Do it. Make your profit. Make sure it is profitable. Uh, make your profits and so forth, but keep an eye on what you're trying to do. And, you know, if you're building a business to hand to your your children and pass on down the line, that's one strategy because you can, you can afford to stay within a certain size range. You can afford to uh, run the business for free cash flow. Look, this industry is so for so long has run the business for growth because there was so much growth coming at them i'm not so sure the industry understands in total what it means to run it for free cash flow but when you start to run a business for free cash flow more is more weight in your thinking than running it for growth you look at not only every penny but you look at pulling the cash out of the business right. and then you ask yourself what do you do with the cash that you pull out of the business well you find other places to invest it and in the case of our Mountain as a public company, we pulled, uh, I think, $2.2 billion out of the business to our shareholders in the last couple of years, huh. okay? And that's because that was more than we needed to invest. You'll see more of that kind of cycle. You'll see a lot of the private uh, independent operators realizing that, yeah, I have a choice here. Am I going to uh, build another building? Go out and find, you know, take might take, used to take two years to fill it. It might take five. Uh, the average price in that building might be lower. Am I going to do that or i am going to manage my portfolio of customers through price such so that I keep what I have full and that I gush the most free cash flow I can and take that out of the business and do something else with it? People are making those choices and you'll see them making more of those choices as time goes on and different people will make different choices obviously depending yeah. on where they, they are in their life cycle and what they want to do with their business but the answer is there are more complicated strategies it's not one size fits all and every entrepreneur has got to think about their time horizon a lot of this has to do with time horizon if you think you're going to own that business for 20 more years I'd do one thing if you think you're going to own it for 3 to 5 more years you do something else
0: right so if a young woman approaches you and says she wants to get into this business in maybe the more a substantial way as a as a comprehensive provider of all of the services, what would be the top three pieces of advice you'd give her?
1: Don't. <laughs> Even though I think it's a good business, I think it's a little late to do startup. Okay. Because uh, the the return profiles are different. You look at the consolidators that are out there now, the Cornerstone and Access are both private equity funded. Private equity model is such that you have to grow fast, you have to uh, optimize it, and you have to sell it. They'll have to get to a place, whether an Iron Mountain or Rambles or one of the other consolidators buys them or they buy each other. They have to have an exit. That's just a very different game than we were able to do. Us, as well as all the people that are in the industry today who've been able to take a much longer view. This is a very long business to build. Yeah. So I I think it would be, I personally would not bring outside capital in to do a startup in the business. Hmm. If they want to go start doing acquisitions to get a core. That has historically been the most successful strategy to build something of scale and large. So you'd probably look at doing that. But even then, it's the economics have changed and things are different. You need you need to have a platform to consolidate an acquisition into to make the economics make sense. Right. As a standalone business, uh, swapping from one player to the other, it's not working today. Hmm. Unless the seller wants to take a much lower price, and I don't blame them. I wouldn't either. Yeah
0: couple of years ago you gave a state of the union address at the prism conference in reno and in that address you stated that this rim business was yours what you considered the second best business in the world but you did not disclose the best business and for the last three two to three years since you did that there has been a buzz in the industry about what you thought the best one was so what is the best business and why do you think it's better than this business
1: well, you know, let's see. I'll have to go back in time to remember what I was thinking about then. I honestly don't remember what I had in my mind, so I'm sorry I created That's a, a, a complete button. letdown, Richard. That's a complete yeah, letdown.
0: Oh, my goodness, because we've all been wondering what it what, what it was.
1: Well, no, look, there are better businesses out there, but there's, the characteristics of a great business, which I think we have a lot of them, are, look, there, there is no better business than... Then the hard copy document storage business, particularly in the days where the customers were sending you dramatically more boxes than they were destroying and you had a, just a, a built-in return growth rate, that's almost unheard of in any any business. You know, you didn't really have to go work hard to get that growth. Most of that is over, as you, as you know. Right. There's still yeah. customers doing it, but on average, okay? But... In any point in time, and if you look out in the markets, there's always somebody who's hot. I mean, I mean, look at look at Apple, look at Google, and all those. And you know, Google is a better business. Let's be clear. Yeah. I mean, they, they they're giant, but they'll have their day, and they all have their cycles. And in the technology business, it doesn't take long. I can remember when Apple was on their knees. They've been our customer for a long time. and I can remember when they're on their knees. I can remember talking to them when they couldn't sell. Some of their uh, different generations and then you know they rejuvenated themselves and it's a phenomenal business. and They've done a wonderful job. But, so there's a lot of businesses that in sh- you know, over short cycles and so forth are better, but I've not ever seen any that have the annuity characteristics that have good returns on capital. There are a lot of businesses that have much higher returns on capital, by the way, but who can sustain it over such a long period of time. And that's been the strength of, I think, the REM industry. And I think the REM industry, as I said, has got a bright future. It's a different future. It's not. It doesn't have the growth of the past. Mm-hmm. The growth of Iron Mountain, uh, we will get and are getting substantial growth. They're in emerging markets. The emerging markets of the world have uh, 20 to 25 years of outsourcing ahead of them, just like North America did. And so you can see good double-digit uh, internal growth rates. You can see uh, a lot of things going on. But there are very different places to do business. It's, it's not for the uh, faint heart. Uh, it, it's it's different business climates, uh, different investment parameters, and different lots of things. And We've done really well in some and less well in others, but as an entrepreneur, you better make sure you choose the right one because some, some have been dogs. We've gotten out of some where we got out of Italy, which I, I, I don't want to knock the country because I love to visit there and I love the food, but it's a horrible place to do business for an outsider. Hmm. And we just concluded we couldn't do it. And uh, so, you know, there, like I said, there's a lot of good things. We think w- with a global perspective, we know we have lots more opportunities. You know, we're doing a lot of work in the Asian realm and so forth that will give us growth for a long period of time. In North America, it's about driving efficiency. It's about some adjacent services, which we've, we've gotten working work on. And it's about, uh, and I think the business uh, we'll get tougher on everybody as we all fight for a smaller pie, mm-hmm. and yeah. that will cause more people to decide it's time to to sell. And I think we're going to go through all those cycles. Uh, don't get me wrong. We and others are we will be more aggressive. We, I, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't been out of Iron Mountain long enough to not call it we. And, yeah. and for for the record, I am not an employee anymore. Right. Well, actually, for the record, just for the record, I am an advisor to them right now, but uh, I have no official capacity at Iron Mountain anymore. Hmm. Although I am a large shareholder, and uh, so I wouldn't tell you anything that I didn't think was in their best interest. Right. I do think that, as I said, the future is different, but I don't. I'm not depressed about it. I don't feel bad about it. I think uh, people will have to behave in different ways, and I think there are more options and choices that individual REM owners, you know, will have to make. And. Uh, uh, they're smart people i think some will make better decisions than others but i don't know i think they'll
0: do fine you're we're talking to you on as you just mentioned you're no longer with iron mountain officially you're still a shareholder and advisor but you're no longer with them um, and you've had an incredible career have there been specific people along the way that you consider as critical or instrumental to your success in the business uh, and if you're comfortable sharing who have they been and what have they meant to you
1: oh yeah there have been a lot of them and uh I'll certainly mention some names, but I want to caveat it that this is by no means a uh, an exhaustive list.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. How it, can it I'll be. Miss, miss people, but you know we've had eras, and and I've been lucky at Iron Mountain. You know, I started as I said a joint was three million dollars. Many of the old timers in prison will know the name Don Hughes, who's no longer with us, and I don't mean with the company. He died a few years ago. Uh, Don was just a stalwart in the industry and a great human being, and he was just a great partner for me and. I raised the money and uh, and did some of the selling and, and and so forth, and Don made it happen. He was just a guy that, that can-do attitude and really fostered in our mountain real can-do attitude and hmm. so forth. So you have people like Don Hughes. We, we have another gentleman who, after we bought Bell & Howell, was just a real key guy named Bob Swift, who operated out of the West Coast, uh, came to us out of the Bell & Howell acquisition, but uh, was with us a long time. He died in the last few months ago, so unfortunately, we're all getting older. yeah. But Bob was a great friend, and you know there there there've been people in my life that I always judge it says you know if you're in the battle line and you're a foxhole, who do you want on your left and your right? And it would be Bob on one side and Don on the other. Wow. Having said that, some people remember David Wendell, who was president of Iron Mountain in our early days for a while. He was extremely uh, instrumental in a lot of things we did, and left at the time of the Pierce merger. Many people remember John Kenny, yeah. who was our CFO, who did a lot of the M&A work. He bought a lot of businesses in, in the industry, and John remains a good friend, and he, he decided to go on and just off on his own right now. And people know a lot of people from the prison days, uh, people like Mike Holland. They know well in the prison days who was an independent operator who stayed with Iron Mountain over a long period of time. And as you probably know, we've occasionally kept uh, the entrepreneurs who've stayed with us, but we usually find that... We almost always, in fact, the, the core mountaineers were and are, in a lot of cases, people who came to us through acquisitions. People that were companies before us, and they found it a good place to stay and build a career. But it was typical: the entrepreneurs either didn't want to stay in many cases, or stayed a while and and left. And but there were a few who stayed long term and Mike being one of them. He's found success with us over the years. So yeah. It's worked out well, and, you know, I could go on and on and on with a long list of people. They were kind enough to give me a party before I retired, and so I made sure to invite as many of those people as I could get there to it, and we had a very good time and, uh, and so forth. So oh, you know, this is not a journey that Richard Reese did. I was fortunate enough to be the CEO and, the, you know, the, the man at the helm for for all of it, but by no means the. <laughs> You know, and everybody that's worked with me will absolutely reinforce this. By no means did I do it all or that, yeah. that it happened by magic by me. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, but within that, I believe there's values or beliefs or actions that have been a catalyst to your own personal and professional success. Could you name what, what you consider some of the strongest, most important beliefs, values or, or actions that have been a critical part of just the way you believe and think and act every day?
1: Uh, sure. It's uh, it's actually pretty easy. It's encapsulated in one phrase that I talk a lot about. It's do the right thing. If you do the right thing by your customers, your employees, and your shareholders, you're going to have your best chance of being successful. And it's not always clear what the right thing is up front. A lot of people like nationalize it. So the trick of a manager or owner or any leader is to is spend your time to figure out what the right thing is. And if the right thing is bad for you, but good for your customer, you're going to have to do it and, hmm. and play for the long haul. And same thing for your shareholder. And you've got to communicate and bring people along sometimes, particularly shareholders on what the right thing is, because they all want to argue about that. But if you're just driven by doing the right thing, and that's a culture that we've tried to instill among mountaineers since I've been there. And we we screw it up. Don't get me wrong. We we do bad things, wrong things. We make mistakes, but we don't do them maliciously. And if we ever, and if we find people that did, we we talk them out. If you just keep that as your north star, that works. And every time we've sort of gotten away from that, it did work so well. And yeah. uh, that's what's driven me. And guess I got lucky by that. I don't know where it, where it came about in my life. That I just figured it's always easy to do the right thing and let the chips fall where they were. Hmm
0: so if if you had the chance to go back to nineteen eighty one when you started with Iron Mountain, is there anything now with all you know today that you might have done differently
1: oh god yeah the the, the list is so long and mistakes really? made and opportunities missed that those, I, I couldn't even, we could be talking there for a week, <laughs> of course, I'd do a whole lot of things differently, but you know i wouldn't i I'd do it all over again too i would, would you? you know i i would uh, oh yeah they you know, there have been a lot of a lot of issues, and a lot of things come up, and a lot of things I regret, and a lot of uh, things I wish hadn't happened. Uh, but there've also been a lot of wonderful opportunities and events, and and successes. And uh, but you know, net net, I like where we are, and I like you know, I, I'm proud of uh, my career at Iron Mountain. I'm proud of the company, and I'm proud of the people that are that are still there. Hmm. Uh, you know, I do want to put a plug in for my successor, Bill Meany. He's uh, it took us a couple of years to find the right guy, but he absolutely is the right guy, I think, and the right cultural fit, and he's quite smart, and he will. You know, he'll be out at prison. People will get a chance to meet him uh, and, and at Armour and trade shows, and he'll go up and introduce yourself. He's a nice guy, and I think he'd be interested in what you have to say and what, what Iron Mountain can do to uh, continue to evolve and help the industry.
2: Yeah.
0: So you have the ears of your records and information management colleagues and comrades today. Some have been in the game a long time like you, uh, back to ACRC days, Uh, others just getting started or somewhere in the middle. Uh, As what I consider the elder statesman of this big, wonderful, amazing industry, what would you like to say to everyone listening to you today?
1: Well, really, I'd like to thank them. As as I said, I couldn't have done... And, and built Iron Mountain. have been part of this without the employees, and a lot of mountaineers who are still active at the company, and mountaineers who are no longer active. But I can say the same thing about many friends in the industry. Mm-hmm. Some of whom are no longer active or have left the industry and remain friends. Some of whom are, frankly, no longer living. And there's a lot of people in the last say 10 years in the industry that, quite frankly, I don't know as well. Yeah. You know, although I, you know, went to the you know to the Prism shows. You know, as you get bigger and the show gets bigger, you just you don't meet as many new people as you'd like to, frankly. But I think, it collectively, it's a great industry of people, and uh, it, we we would not have been as successful if they had not also been as successful. And even though we've competed in many cases head-to-head, and I know some of them hate our guts, <laughs> I've heard all the stories and the bragging and everything else. But net-net, uh, we've done well, and I think they've done well, and I think that's a good thing for everybody. And I appreciate their contributions to all that.
0: Hmm. You don't seem to me a retirement kind of guy. I, I know you tried to get out a few years ago and you got pulled back in. But for someone who, you know, to me, you have one of the most astute brains uh, that that I've ever witnessed. What's next? Where do you go from here? What's the next chapter in Richard Reese's life?
1: Well, as, as I told you earlier, I'm uh, I'm talking to you from Florida, where my wife and I came last night, having I mean, left Boston. It's just too cold. Yeah. Then I get to Florida and it's 60 degrees here, which is too cold for me. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple strategy. I'm going to spend six to nine months doing nothing and getting bored and some travel and see how bored I can get. I've got at least that much time of uh, personal business life to, particularly uh, the last couple of years when I went back to work and went back in the CEO role. I put a, put a lot of things on hold and I've got to, you know, go back and just take care of all that kind of stuff. So, mm. That'll take me six to nine months. And then after I do that, I and I'll raise my head and I'll, I'll go figure out. You know, I'm 67 years old, I think, something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, I I'll, I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do next. Probably I w- you will not see me in the records business. Almost uh, certainly you won't see me in the records business. And probably I won't go back to work at any particular company. Right. But I, I do sit on one, one company, public board, and I'll continue doing that. And, I, you know, I have left Iron Mountains board, but this is another company called Charles River Labs. is a great company in the, in the biotech and medical uh, sure. services business, pharmaceutical services. I'll either sit on some boards if I get too bored, or I will uh, do some, some consulting, uh, and I've got a lot of charity work that I've got to figure out. I've, I've been fortunate in terms of amassing a recent amount of personal wealth that is well over what anybody needs. and so. My wife and I plan to find ways to give a good part of that away, and I'm learning that giving away money is about as hard, maybe harder, doing it intelligently. It's easy to do, unintelligently. Giving oh, away yeah. intelligence is probably harder probably harder than making it. And I understand why Warren Buffett, who I'm about nowhere near his, his level of anything, but I understand why he outsourced it to Bill Gates. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a variety of things like that to go figure out, and uh, when I do, I'll, I'll, I'm sure we'll keep it busy, but... Right Good. now, I'm looking forward to being bored and hopefully a little warmer for a while.
0: Good. Are you still drumming?
1: Yeah, actually, I am. Uh, not much, but I, uh, in my retirement party, I actually got a chance to uh, to sit down on the drum kit with Max Weinberg of the East Street Band.
2: Wow. And
1: uh, that was uh, the East Street Band. is his his large orchestra was there, and with there some uh, common acquaintances, he he came and. Uh, I had a good time oh but that's i'm not drumming it. I'm not drumming enough to uh make a living at it and keep my day job as I say,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, Richard, I I have to say thank you. Thank you on behalf of the records and information management industry and community for your incredible leadership and contribution over the years. Thank you for being a visionary and jumping into the stream and making it into a huge river for so many people. Uh, I, I think your presence in this industry will forever be felt, but immediately and I think permanently missed. So congratulations on such an amazing and successful career. I wish you a retirement full of infinite possibility and overflowing with the benefits that come from the incredible years of service you've given us. Uh, best wishes to you and Janet from all of us in the RIM industry.
1: Well, I appreciate your kind words and, and your interest in having me do this. And uh, I'd say thank you again to the entire industry, and I wish you all well. And I hope that my, my views of the future are, are, are even far. Are more conservative, and I hope that you all do extremely well, and uh, hopefully, we'll cross paths somewhere in the future. Thank you.
0: Well, if you're still here, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us this week to. Uh, to really rehear uh, Richard Reese's uh, incredible interview. I'm, I'm really grateful to Richard for the influence, the impact he had on the industry. And uh, thanks for listening to the show. I, I think if you didn't get something incredibly helpful, to think about your business, to think about the landscape, to think about the way the world is in the RIM services world. Uh, If you missed that, uh, I I suspect you might have been sleeping, but uh, there were so many good things there to hear. Thanks again for joining us, and special thanks to O'Neill Software, our exclusive show sponsor. O'Neill has been in the game just about as long as Richard Reese has. In fact, it was more than 30 years ago now their software became the first commercially available software for the record storage industry and that spirit of innovation and leadership continues to this day and if you want to learn more about them and what they do and the cool stuff that they have coming for you you can check that out at o'neilsoft.com we'll be back next week with some cool new interviews for you have a good one we are out of here. Thanks for
2: joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others.
0: Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.